Good morning. Those of you who don't know me, uh, my name's Chris. I'm the pastor at New City Fellowship, uh, your church plant in the Beechwood neighborhood. And um, I'm happy to be with you this week. Uh, Mark and I normally uh, switch pulpits on, on Presbytery weekends. And so uh, that is why I'm with you. But I'm happy to be with you. Uh, and I'm glad to see you all. Um, this week, I get to uh, continue with you as you walk through the book of Galatians. Uh, many of you know Mark and I are, are preaching together through that book, but we got a little out of whack around the holiday season. And so Mark asked me to preach what I preached in my church last week for you this week so that now we can sync up again and uh, Mark and I will be able to do sermon prep together. So sorry you don't get Mark's Galatians 4, 1 through 7 sermon, but you've made it possible for he and I to hang out <laughs> again uh, without feeling guilty. So, um, yeah, we are in uh, the book of Galatians, chapter 4, this week. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 together. And uh, I don't know how much review you need. I'm sure you've been tracking along with Pastor Mark. But just by way of sort of a brief and broad review, uh, you've got this region called Galatia. That's like, you know, the size of Pennsylvania. And uh, you've got all these churches in Galatia that are growing, and they seem to be strong. Uh, but Paul, the apostle, as we read the New Testament, we find is deeply troubled by their view of Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished on their behalf. Uh, Paul feels like the good news of the gospel is being overshadowed by other things in these churches. And so apparently, Paul has found out that these church leaders are uh, requiring new converts uh, to undergo Jewish, and, uh, Jewish practices and rituals uh, in order to be saved, in order to be viewed by the churches as having a, a saving relationship with Jesus. And so what we see there is there is a sort of a, an ethnic pride and a religious pride at work in those churches that deeply offends Paul. And so he has written this letter to the church in Galatia, and we see all kinds of things in this letter. We, we certainly see uh, serious and stern admonishment to the leaders of the church in Galatia. We see lofty theology and deep theological concepts plumbed by Paul in this letter. But as we come to this passage today, I think there is something deeply personal uh, that Paul is trying to drill down on for these leaders. And what he is asking us to do is ask ourselves some questions about ourselves. He's wanting us to look at our own hearts and our own views of ourselves, and make some distinctions and determinations. And the main question that we want to focus on today is this one. Do you know who you are in God's eyes? Simple question. Do you know who you are in God's eyes? Do you know what your essential identity is before this living God? And have you considered what it means for you as you make daily decisions in relationships and at your job and 
uh, in ministry and with your neighbors? Does, does your view of yourself before God impact how you live your life? So the Galatians need a reminder of what the gospel is, who they are, and how it compels them to live together in community. And I want to suggest we all need that <laughs> all the time. So if you're able to stand, please stand while we read from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Lord, we ask for your help now as we turn to your word. Please send this same spirit, the spirit of your son Christ, into our hearts. That even as we read these words and try to understand them, that we would be calling out for help from you. And we do this in Christ's name alone. Amen. So to be able to answer this question, who am I? I want to suggest that there are three other questions. Imagine that, three. <laughs> three other questions. Actually, there's going to be two, four. There's going to be like five or six. But uh, <clears throat> three other questions that we're going to consider here. The first is this. How do I see myself in relation to God? How do I see myself in relation to God? How do I see Jesus in relation to me? And third, how do these things change my life? Right, so these are all questions that I want to suggest are implied here in the passage. How do I see myself in relation to God? How do I see Jesus in relation to me? And how do these things change my life? So, firstly, how do I see myself in relation to God? Now, what Paul is doing at the beginning of this passage is essentially trying to get us to consider how we view our relationship to God by giving us a couple analogies. Right now, he's just finished bringing us through this whole discussion of Abraham and Moses, and he's done all this Old Testament sort of history, and he's talked about covenant and all these things, and now he comes down and he says, okay, you got all that stuff. And then what he says is, what I'm trying to tell you is that the heir, right, if you look at verse 1, the heir of an estate, and then he begins these analogies. It's like, let's just start with some stuff that everybody knows about. Maybe you all don't know about Abraham. <laughs> okay, let me tell you something that you do know about. And he gives us, first of all, this analogy of a young boy who is the heir of this great estate. And when he is of age and has proved himself in some way, shape, or form, he will be given everything on that estate. You know, think about 
Uh, if, if you dare, think about the, the, the throne in England and how these things pass down uh, through the generations, right? You, you can't just have it all at once, right? You've got to make some uh, strides in life. You've got to reach a certain age, at least. So you've got to prove your mettle in some ways or else you're cast aside, right? So this heir is waiting, right? There's, there's lands. There's there are animals, there's vast wealth, there's property. In the ancient Near East, there were slaves, right? Uh, businesses, all kinds of things waiting f- uh, to be received by this heir. And on top of that, the heir has people, guardians and managers who follow him around and make sure that he's not screwing things up by making stupid decisions, Uh, And so the picture we have here is of a spoiled little boy who is not happy about the fact that he can't have it all right now. He is, in a sense, under law. He's waiting to become something. He's waiting to get something. And what Paul is asking, particularly Christians, to think about their lives is, is this how you relate to God? Is this how you see yourself in relation to God? Am I merely waiting to become something before I am rewarded with all the gifts of God? Am I merely waiting until I get something from God, until I'm really happy in my life? Is there something unworthy about me? Right now, that means that I cannot have what God wants to give me. And what Paul says, if you think those things, if you live your life in this way, then you are enslaved to the law. All right? That's the language he uses. If this is how you interpret your relationship to God, you are enslaved. Because there's something that I think I can do to get his approval On one hand, or on the other hand, I may think that there's something lacking in me that is holding his approval back. Okay? Paul says that's slavery. But then he gives us another analogy to try to help us understand what he's saying. And he says, you are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Okay, now that's a strange statement. He'll get more into it in the next passage in Galatians, but what does he mean here in this context by elementary principles with regard to children? What he's done is he's taken this picture of an heir on an estate, sort of trapped on this estate, and he's broadened it to a child, not just trapped on an estate, but a child trapped in a world full of concepts that he or she does not understand. All right, so more of a, it's more of a mental game that Paul starts to talk about. And I think what he means is that for a time, children have to do what is expected of them. Uh, they just can't bear the details. <laughs> they just can't bear the truth of what's going on around them, the bigger and more complex forces that are at work. You might think of it like this, the, the difference between, I, I, have, I have four kids, and uh, if any, any of you with children, uh, if you have young children, enjoy it while you can. But you get to an age where, you have devices in the double digits in your house, 
and you have streaming services, maybe over four or five. <laughs> uh, but it's the difference between a kid picking up a device and saying, oh, I'm so glad we have Netflix. Um, the difference between that and saying, well, uh, I'm so glad that we have an energy network, solar, hydro, coal, uh, that delivers this electricity to my home through an overhead or underground source, uh, and I have this amazing Wi-Fi that I still don't even understand what it is, but it allows the 12 or 13 devices in my home to connect and multiple passwords for multiple kids and multiple protections. And I look at that device and my kid is watching Netflix on it and go, this is insanity. Why? Why must we live this way? But my kid's just like, I, you know, I like uh, whatever, life below zero, it's fun, you know. Um, that's the difference that Paul is talking about, right? This vast world that a child just cannot grasp or understand and just enjoys sort of what becomes magic to them. And what Paul is saying is that an incomplete view of reality really drastically reduces a person's freedom. Thankfully, we care for those children, but you can't be an adult and, and live in relation to your devices that way. You have to know the bigger picture. What Paul is saying is that these church leaders have an incomplete and childish view of grace that they are wielding like a baseball bat on their people. He's saying... You're enslaving your people to elementary principles that reduce your relationship to God to a transactional relationship where you do good and God pays you back. And Paul says this, too, is enslavement to the law. He says this makes your relationship to God contingent on your behavior and actions. I do good, God blesses me, and what that does is it reduces God to the kind of pagan God that can be appeased by my ritualistic life. And that's no God at all. And so Paul calls this enslavement. You see what he's doing is he's saying that any attempt on our end to make ourselves right with or acceptable to God is like the attempt of a child to get his parents to give him something that he has no ability to manage or understand and let him have full reign with that thing. And so this really challenges the way we see ourselves in relation to God. It means that if I approach God assuming that I can live in such a way as to warrant his acceptance, I am not even approaching God. I am approaching a made-up thing in my mind that has no relationship to him. In essence, I have no relationship to God if I am trying to please him to warrant his acceptance. Now, that is, that is a, a drastic and terrifying thought. But here's the good news. God does not offer us acceptance based on our ability. He offers us grace based on Jesus' ability. That's the whole point of the New Testament. <laughs> it's all about Jesus' abilities. 
indeed, and his success. It's through that grace that I receive acceptance. And so the quality of my relationship to God will be determined by the degree to which I experience grace through Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to to, to tell us here. The quality of our relationship, when we ask ourselves this question about what is my relation to God, Paul is telling us the quality of that relationship is determined by the degree to which I behold Jesus' grace in my life and meditate on and enjoy that grace. Well, so how do we do that? How do, how do we get a hold of that kind of assurance? Uh, you could go out there and just tear it up <laughs> and be an awful person and then say, okay, Lord, take me, right? I don't recommend that. Although, people have done that, right? I don't recommend it. I would like to give you a better option for how to find the grace of Jesus and discover who he is in relation to you. According to the scriptures, here's how we do it. Paul takes us in verse 4 to this teaching. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul wants us to meditate on this deep truth, if we're going to understand Jesus' relationship to me. Now, there are two viable ways to understand what Paul has said here. And we ought not to make a choice between the two. We ought to, we ought to use both these methods of understanding this passage to get down to the, the truth here. But there's two ways. The first is this, to look at what Paul says here in verse 4 as the grand scheme of history. And the grand scheme of theology. And in this sense, when we think about what Paul is saying here regarding the fullness of time, we do actually think about time and space and history. We think about all that we know of history uh, from other sources now, and we think of all that we know about history as we read the scriptures. We think about creation, and we think about all the life of the nation of history, of, of Israel that is told about their history in the book of Genesis and Exodus, and all that we pick up in the rest of the book of the law, and the prophets and all that. We think about all the potential exterminations of the people of Israel that we learn of in those pages, and how generation after generation after generation, there's always a remnant carrying forth God's promises despite all the hardships they faced. And then we think about the first century, and we think about the Roman Empire. (laughs) And you think about Roman military might and things like the Pax Romana. And we think about how Rome went in there and conquered violently hundreds of nations. (laughs) And the nation of Israel was all wrapped up in that. And by God's grace, somehow they were gifted the city of Jerusalem in which to build temple. (laughs) I mean, it's a crazy history. But somehow, some way, through the, the, the military 
and the economic and the civic rule of Rome, the people of God were allowed to survive. The nation of Israel was allowed to survive. And you think about Greece, and you think about Greek culture, and the ways in which Greek culture valued diversity. It made it possible for different groups of people to have commerce through the Greek language, right? What I'm trying to explain to you here is the grand scheme that Paul has in his mind when he's thinking about the fullness of time. God providentially unfurled history in such a way to position the nation of Israel in Jerusalem and to have the Son of God come forth out of some podunk suburb and enter Jerusalem and proclaim the promises of God as the one true remnant of Israel. It's a crazy history. And Paul says that represents the fullness of time. History was ready to burst like a a pregnant woman on the eve of the birth of her child. And it it just so happened that it had to do with the ancient Near East and nations like, or empires like Rome and nations like Israel and cultures like Greek culture. That's how it unfolded. And we read here that this birth, though common in many ways, was extremely unique. Jesus was born of a woman. He was born under law. He subjected himself to all the laws that we are subjected to, natural, cultural, and religious. He was anchored to the same reality that we are anchored to. So there's commonality with us, but it's the uniqueness that stands out because he was the only one born to do the thing that he did. He was the only one born in history whose job it was to redeem all of us from a broken and terrifying world. (laughs) That's what makes him the savior. And so this is what I mean when I talk about the grand scheme Right, the lofty theology that Paul is trying to help these Galatian churches understand. He's like, you are, you are Greeks in the middle of the Roman Empire who are believing a Jewish sectarian faith right now, <laughs> who have entered into the rela- a relationship with God through all these channels. And he's saying, you have to understand how important this moment in history is for you to really know Jesus And to really know his father and to not layer over this one true faith for all the ages with all these other expectations and laws. But here's the second way to think about it. You get the grand scheme way, which is vitally important, but there's another way. And it makes it extremely personal for each and every person in this room, each and every Galatian who was enabled to hear this message has a potential, unlike maybe some of this grand scheme stuff, (laughs) has the potential to really hit you in your heart. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law. Amazing, beautiful, grand scheme. So that we might receive adoption as sons. How does adoption fit into this cosmic scheme 
Adoption? That's, like a, that's just a clunky word that describes human relationships. Jesus came in the fullness of time so that we could be adopted by the Creator God. In other words, there's no other way. There's no other relationship to God to have other than through this adoptive relationship. What Paul wants us to see is that if we are chasing religion, if we are chasing acceptance, if we see our relationship to God as one of me trying to win his approval, if I see my vocation as a means by which to win approval, if I see my uh, experience and a political interaction as a means by which to win approval. If I look at my education as a means by which to win approval, you see, anything I put in place of God's sovereign approval because the fullness of time came and Christ came in that moment so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, if I put anything in between those two statements, I have enslaved myself to a law. See, we're never sure in that moment if what we're doing is right or acceptable. I'm never sure if these parents are just going to get up and leave me like the last ones did. I'm always wondering if I'm ever going to feel at home anywhere. This job doesn't feel right. This lifestyle doesn't feel right. This neighborhood doesn't feel right. These political ideas don't fit me right anymore, right? There's always this sense that we are wanderers and wondering if we've done it right, if we've listened to the right people, if we've read the right books. Never right enough. Never good enough. And that's the mentality of an orphan who never gets to go home with a set of loving parents. That's the mentality of an orphan who's always waiting, watching the others be adopted. But here we read that Jesus made it possible for us to be adopted, and not because of anything we've ever done or could ever do, not because of our great personalities or character or behavior, but because of his own, which Paul tells us here was perfect. Because of Jesus' personality, Jesus' identity, Jesus' behavior, Jesus' perfect life, that I am able to have adoption into the family of God. And when we apply these things to ourselves, when we think about the, the individual application of this great big cosmic theology, we see that, yes, there was this one-time fullness that Paul is talking about, but at the same time, He's talking about the fullness of time in his own life. And he's asking you to think about how time has moved in your life. About the fullness of time that you've experienced. Fullness of time came for me when I was like 16 years old. I was lost. My parents were divorced. My mom was working 60 hours a week. I did whatever I wanted to. I made my own schedule. I lived my life the way I wanted. I was deeply distraught and sad and lonely. 
I worried about everything. I worried about what people thought of me. I worried about how I looked. All I wanted was a girlfriend. I couldn't get girlfriends, right? Sound familiar, anybody out there? I was sad. I was going nowhere, right? I almost got kicked out of high school, barely graduated, all that stuff. But I was just like millions of kids. But God, in the fullness of time, brought people into my life that told me about grace. And they told me about Jesus. And they explained adoption to me. And they told me that no matter how lost I felt, I could be found. That God was reaching out to me, that he wanted to change my life. And I felt in the core of my being that I was redeemed, that I was adopted, that I was part of God's family, and I didn't have to do anything else. And God started working with me. See, the fullness of time appeared in my life, and everything changed. I had nothing to offer God. I wasn't even really looking for him. I was trying to get away as fast as I could. I had nothing to offer him. I had very little direction on where I was going. I couldn't help God figure out what he wanted to do. (laughs) He came into my life, and he changed it. Christ became my older brother, perfect older brother, who accomplished everything for me that I needed accomplished, and he went to God the Father and said, this guy, let's get him. So, Who is Jesus in relation to me? He's the only way that I can be part of God's family. And he has given me all things. Amen? Now, how do these things change my life? All right, that's the last question we need to ask. And I got to whip through this. How do these things change my life? Well, how have they changed my life? Right? We'll continue with the autobiographical information. Well, I ain't rich, I'll tell you that. Okay? Uh, I'm not really super great at any one thing in particular. Uh, I'm healthy, but I got some health problems. You know what I'm saying? I'm almost 50. You all know what's happening in these bodies, right? You got some problems. Life's been good overall, but life has been hard. Even as an adopted child of God, things have been difficult. God has seen me through some difficult times, but I've gotten into some trouble, right? I I got into some trouble when I was young that follows me today. (laughs) But if I measure my life by these tangible things, I have to say, man, things haven't really worked out like I hoped they would, right? If I'm honest, I I wish I were more this. I wish I were more that. I wish I had done this more. I wish I had done that more. It's not really working out exactly the way I wanted. But what you will find with Christians is that though we may hold that view, we also feel like we're going to be okay. I can say, man, things haven't worked out, but I can also say, but I have the one true God, the Lord and creator of the universe as my father. (laughs) And things are going to be okay. The reason for this is because of who I am in relation to God 
because of Jesus. It's because I have a new identity that I get to walk through all these problems with. There's, there's nothing I can do to break that relationship. I wasn't special when God came and got a hold of me. So there's, the logic stands that there's really nothing I can do to screw it up now that he does have a hold of me. So I am free, indeed, to make mistakes. I am free to continue risking my safety in certain situations. I am free to continue to pursue reconciliation with people that hate me. I am free to continue working hard at a job that seems like it's going nowhere. I'm free to do all kinds of things because I have the solid relationship that God has established with me. It's the sense of belonging to a family and knowing you will always have a place to go at the end of the day where you will find rest for your soul, no matter what has happened. Well, how? What's, what's the engine for this change? And there's just two quick things we got to talk about because we need to understand the motivation, right? How this carries out. And what Paul says is it happens through a spirit-filled heart orientation that cries out, Abba, Father. He says it's actually his own spirit, God's own spirit, what Paul calls the spirit of his son, that comes into our hearts when we're adopted through Christ. And that spirit is what carries us through all the awful garbage of life (laughs) and the hardship of life and the good and, and the good as well. But you really feel it in the middle of things being really hard. And it has something to do with this word, Abba. And there's all kinds of speculation about what this word means. And in my study of the word, you know, I didn't see any evidence of this daddy thing that so many people talk about. I can, I'll trust my forebears and the faith that somewhere out there, that's what it means. But Abba is just simply Aramaic for father, and there's only one Word for father in Aramaic, and there's only one other time that it was used in the New Testament, and that was by Jesus in Mark 14 as he is suffering and knows he's going to die. And he says, Abba, and he's begging God to relent. And what I think Paul is emphasizing by using this word here is he's saying, listen, When you're ready to tap out, when you feel like all is lost, you have the same access to the God of the universe that his son Jesus has. And just call out, help. And what that does is it gives us all a deep sense of humility. That's the first thing, right? Humility before God. The understanding that we can't change the course of the history of our lives. (laughs) That that God is in control. And our job is to beg for help and mercy. Like we would from an all-powerful father. It's the clear confession that we are not in charge. That we need help every day, every hour. You know the old hymn, I need thee, I need thee. Oh, how I need thee. Every hour I need thee. That's the claim of the Christian. 
Paul is emphasizing that we call on God our Father with the same humble confidence that Jesus did. He doesn't always give us what we want, (laughs) but we know that we can trust his will for us. And it's directly, that, that kind of humility is directly opposed to the kind of pride that tries to earn the inheritance. Right? If you're working hard to earn the inheritance, then you cannot humble yourself at the end. You are merely getting what you worked for. But this Abba cry is saying, I can't work anymore. I'm all worked out. I got nothing left. Nothing in the tank. No more ideas. No more energy. I just need you. So that's the first thing. Humility. The second thing is this. And it's the more glorious of the motivators (laughs) in this adoption. Paul says in verse 7, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. What Paul confirms here is we're not potential heirs. God is not keeping track of your sins. You need to hear that. God is not keeping track of your failures. He is not watching to go, maybe I'll give this guy what he's looking for at the end. We'll see how he does. Maybe we'll give this young lady what she's after. If and only if she behaves this way. That's not how God is living in relation to us. We are heirs if we are adopted sons and daughters of God through Christ. None of what he has will be withheld for us. Now, there's a, obviously, there's a time that we live in now in which we're not able to have all those benefits because of the limitations of this flesh. But we are promised that we will have another body <laughs> and another life and another hope and another deeper experience of life and created human joy than we could ever hope for now. There's no carrot and stick in divine adoption. We are his. He is ours. There's no more fear of being successful enough, smart enough, tough enough, whatever kind of enough that you are demanding of yourself or of others in your life, there is nothing like that in your relationship to your Heavenly Father. And so if this humility and hope has changed your life, you will know who you are. And Lord willing, you'll begin to see how it impacts others. And you will be truly walking through this life as an adopted son or daughter of the living God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, which totally changes and alters our lives. Lord, we thank you that you have brought into our lives that moment, that fullness of time, that transformational moment of knowing that you are ours and we are yours. Lord, forgive us for covering over that moment with other things, for straying away from you, for trying to earn something from you that we just can't get. Lord, help us to call out with the spirit of sonship, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, 
help when we need it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.